I think it's a great idea to actually get a hold of the, the passage of Scripture that we're working on. So I'm going to ask Barry to come out here and he's going to read us from Mark chapter 4 up to, up to verse 20. All right. I was going to use a funny voice, but I decided I won't. <laughs> All right. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lake shore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat in the boat a while. He sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on the footpath and the birds came and ate it. Other fell on the shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants so they produced no grain. Still other seed fell on fertile soil and they sprouted, grew and produced a crop that was 30, 60 and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears, with ears, with ears? Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Later, when Jesus was alone with the twelve disciples and with the others who were gathered around him, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? The farmer plants the seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as they fell among the foot. Sorry, they fall away sooner. Oh, I lost my spot. As soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded by the worries of life, the lure of wealth, and the desires for other things. So no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60 or even 100 times as much as had been planted. Thank you, Barry. Excellent. Who's ever heard that parable before? It is one of the most well-known and famous parables that Jesus actually gave. One of the reasons for it is in Mark in particular, it's his first one and it actually contains information which relates to all other parables that he gave. And so it's important. So before we talk about it, let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that your word is great for teaching, correction, exhaustion, exaltation. We thank you that our spirits are open to hear and to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, excitedly. 
Amen. Okay, so the first thing we've got to do here, we look at this parable, we've, we've all, well most of us have actually heard it before, but we need to look at the context here. Because there's an important point made straight off the bat, it says Jesus is teaching by a lake. You sort of think, well, I've read about that before, it seems to be one of his favourite places to preach. And you thought, why is he doing that? And if you think about it, he didn't actually start off preaching by the lake. He started off preaching in the synagogue. So there's been a change of scenery here. And this is the first time it's mentioned in Mark. And from this moment on, the chapters in Mark actually deal with this problem that Jesus is actually having. Is A, that there are more people that want to hear him. Um, and he's become really, really popular with the crowd. But also he's become really, really unpopular with the religious crowd. And so he's, he's being attacked from one sector which is trying to get, shut him up. And the other group of people just want to hear more of him. So he's actually moved out of the synagogue so that there's less influence from the religious leaders and he's actually moved to a different venue where he can be heard. I mean, who knows why he's out on the lake? You ever tried to whisper something out on the water? Sound carries over water incredibly well. You can be 100 metres out offshore in a sailboat and say something in a quiet voice. People on the shore can hear you very easily. So... He wants to be heard, but it's also important. Mark has pointed out, and it says in the second half of Mark, he sat in a boat while all the people remained on the shore. You might think, well, so what? But this is, this is the first time we hear about Jesus actually teaching something. Before this, he's gone around, he's performed signs and wonders. People have crowded in and they've actually wanted to receive a miracle or a healing or whatever it is. But here he's, he's teaching and so Mark is actually establishing his authority here by saying Jesus sat down because the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes taught by sitting down. Well, it was sort of like a mark. As soon as a Pharisee sat down, it's like, oh, he's going to say something. And everybody sort of formed a circle and quietly listened. And so he, he's emphasizing here that Jesus is a, a, adopting the posture of a teacher. And the first time here, we're given a sample of his teaching. We're actually told to listen very carefully. So Mark is emphasising that Jesus is a teacher and he is here with a new teaching. So he's, there's some important things. And he also says, Mark 4 verse 2 says, He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables such as this one. And if we look through the book of Mark, largely Jesus' messages to the crowds are in the form of parables, which are stories drawn from everyday life, which are actually meant to tease the hearers about the kingdom of God. Because interestingly, parables both reveal and conceal the kingdom. The difference is on the openness of the ears of the people who are listening. So we've got it. Mark is actually letting us know that Jesus is here. He's a teacher. He has a new teaching, but he has authority to teach. So the second thing, what, what is this sower doing? I mean, I, I read this parable and I think, this guy should be shot. What a careless farmer. Because I, I don't know about you, but I think of farms as pretty neat. They have fences and boundaries, and they have a big tractor, and it, it, it ploughs within the lines, and you sow within There's no wastage. What's this about rocks and thorns and footpaths? Who has a footpath through a, through a field? This guy, he must have just been blindly walking, chucking things. Why would he throw seed on the footpath? Why see a patch of thorns? Like, oh, okay, let's chuck some in there, see what happens. He's stupid. But we have to let go of our 20th century thinking. Back 
In the first century AD and before, a village was a, a collection of houses and there was farming land around it. And if you wanted to go out in the farming land, you made a path. Uh, who, who's ever seen when somebody, the, the council makes a new, a new park and they put in nice concrete paths and after about six months suddenly you discover that there are all these other paths across the lawn which don't follow the concrete paths because people have realised that the council in their wisdom have not put paths where people want to go. And so they make their own. And smart, smart constructors of parks then change the pathways to follow those. Um, and so here, it's not an... You've got me speak, speaking in tongues straight away. It is not an organised urban development here. We've got farmlands. And what used to happen was that when it came to, to, to time to plant, the, the farmer got out their, farmers got out their ploughs and they just ploughed everything. Straight across the footpath, straight through the weeds, straight across the rocky ground, because you couldn't sit. The rocky ground is, just means that it's only about that deep and there's rock underneath it. So your plough goes across, it sort of jumps a bit, but you can't really tell. And so by the time they're finished, the outside of the village is just one big ploughed field. The, the weeds are ploughed in, the thorns are ploughed in, you can't tell where there's rock, it's just, just land. And so they come along and by hand they just sow the whole thing. So he's not looking, he can't see the rocks, he can't see the thorns because they, they've been ripped up, there's, all that's left is the seeds. And so the farmer is going along and he's sowing everything. It's, it's planted. The footpath comes back later. You know, you get people who want to come to the village, they just traipse through your field. And before, no, before you know it, you've got a footpath. doesn't have signposts or drainage or anything like that, but it's a, it's a track in the middle of the field. So that, that, was, that was how that came along. So what happened was that the thorn patches were usually well established because the <coughs> seeds fell in the same place the whole time, but they weren't, it wasn't a mass of brambles. He didn't think, ooh, let's see, have some competition. Um, and so... The whole scenario is a lot different to the idea that we think of as farming. So the, the sower wasn't a careless fellow. He shouldn't have been shot, and I apologise for my previous remarks. Um, but that, that's, that's how it worked. That was a very common sight and very common practice back then in Judea. And so it's so commonplace to them that Jesus knows the story will be familiar, more familiar than it is to us. And so then he demands, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. It sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? But it's actually a Jewish idiom, which means it's just a saying they had. It's like my, uh, my wife's favourite one, to know and not to do is not to know. That's a sort of, it's a, a phrase that she throws around when she thinks people aren't behaving. So if she ever says that to you, to know and not to do is not to know, means that you've spouted something, but it's crap because you're not doing anything about it. So just warning you in, in advance. But it actually shows that the need for careful thought, personal application. And it probably actually reflects, reflects a Hebrew prayer of the time, which means to hear so as to do. And it reflects also on the, got the epistle of James. Who knows James? Who knows what it says in James 2.14? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you have faith but don't show it by your actions? How can that sort of faith save anyone? And so... Jesus is not just telling a parable here, but he's telling it in a, in a way that people who get it are going to have to do something about it. Right. So we, we're all sorted. We know what we're looking at. We've got a picture of the field in your mind now and, and the sower and what happens. So what does it all mean? Now, strangely enough, we're not the first people to ask that question. 
Because then the scripture jumps forward to a time when Jesus is alone with the disciples and a few other faithful followers. And the disciples have been waiting for this because they rush up to him and say, what the hell was all that about? It's a lovely story, but what the hell does it mean? Jesus is a bit disappointed, I think, because I think he expects them to, to, to understand. And so he says two crucial things at this point. He says, you, talking to the disciples, are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. And immediately everybody thinks the Illuminati. <laughs> it's a secret society. There are secrets in Christianity. See, Jesus talks about the secret of the kingdom of God. We need to form a secret society. Pinky shape. Woohoo. No. Get a grip. I'll explain that in a minute. And the second thing is, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the others? So yeah, you can imagine them thinking, oh, I regret asking that question now. <laughs> so from these two comments, we can see that Jesus has actually already shared with them the secret of the kingdom of God, because it's obviously not in that parable, because they didn't understand it. <laughs> so it's got to be something else. And that because of that, he's a bit disappointed, because he expects, because they've heard the secret, that they should understand this parable. And it's so important that they do that he actually explains it to them. Because it's the key, and he says it's the key to all the other parables. This parable is quintessentially the, the, the that, what that means. Anybody know what quint, does, doesn't know what quintessentially means? Yep, okay, ask Jordan after the service. So, first of all, what's the secret? I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Unless you know the secret handshake. The crowd, including the religious leaders and the disciples, were actually confronted by Jesus in that message. So, but God had enabled the disciples to see in him the secret about the kingdom. And the basic secret common to all of these kingdom parables it's just this, in Jesus, God's rule or God's kingdom has come into human experience in a new spiritual form. So in other words, the secret is that Jesus Christ has come as the Son of God. Oh, now you all know. I've spilled the beans. Spoiler alert. Yeah, the Bible's full of them. It's a cheats book. It really is. So the disciples had believed in Jesus, and so God had already given them this uh, secret. Though so far... And as we can tell from the, the next question, they don't actually understand the impact of that secret. Who knows that you can know things, but you, d you don't necessarily under understand the impact. Movies are full of this sort of thing. You know, who's ever seen any of those disaster movies you know, where the world ends in 2015 or whatever it was? And you get people who know the date. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the world ends in 2015. That's a nice date to know. But most of us are pretty cynical, and so we don't, we don't accept the import of that sort of thing. But in the movie, of course, when that date came, you know, Los Angeles disappeared in a cloud of dust and it was really great. I, I, I'd love to go and see it now because it must be a mess because movies, are, movies aren't true. Okay. So the disciples had believed in Jesus. God had given them the secret that he was the son of God. They didn't really understand what that was at the moment, but this parable is actually a key because it refers to the disclosure of God's plan for the kingdom which is to be an age of sowing seeds. So they know, the, they know the secret. On the other hand, those people who are blinded by unbelief, the crowd, Jesus' family, the religious leaders, 
saw Jesus as a threat to their existence. Well, probably his family didn't, but the religious leaders certainly did. They rejected him and therefore didn't actually come to know the secret of God's kingdom. And the parables that Jesus told them actually served to conceal what he was saying. Now, Jesus wasn't doing this to be mean. He was actually doing it to survive. You'll notice that as, as Jesus' story goes along, the parables he tells are clearer and clearer towards the end. But he doesn't tell clear ones at the beginning because they'd have strung him up on a cross straight away. He needed time to actually continue his ministry. So they, they actually concealed the truth. But the interesting thing is they weren't denied the opportunity to believe in him. They heard his parables and they had an opportunity to believe, but their closed-mindedness took them further from him rather than closer. Um, And yet, even as we read them today, the parables are actually there to make you think. They're to provoke something inside of you. It's not a question of heard it once, forget it, doesn't mean anything. Even if they chewed over it at a later date, they could still get something out of it. There was still an opportunity to actually have the light go off, to actually understand the secret and to be saved. When he says, otherwise they would be saved, he's not saying, I've kept it secret because I don't want them to be saved. He's saying that if they don't get the secret, they won't. But the opportunity is always there because the possibility is that if they understand and hear, they will accept Jesus and receive salvation. So what does the parable mean? So do we know what the secret is? It wasn't that big a deal really, was it? Because as as modern people, we, we understand, of course, that Jesus rose again because we've, we've read the rest of the book. I mean, we know that he died and rose again. So, more, sorry, more spoiler alerts. So, the parable is important. So, Mark verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14 says, The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. This is actually repeated in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, they do not understand it, and then Satan takes it out of the mind and the heart so that they don't think any more about it. In other words, there's no response. You get people, you tell them the good news, and zip, nothing. They're not interested. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems and are persecuted for believing God's word. And you, you find people like that, they, they hear God's word, they're instantly accepting, they're enthusiastic, they want to learn stuff, they're excited and you think, wow, we've got a winner on our hands here. And suddenly they go to work and speak to their friend who says, Christianity, load of bunkum. Oh, really? Okay. And it's the last you hear of them. Or, you know, somebody teases them about, what, well, you're going to church on Sunday. Couldn't you do something better with your life? Isn't there something more, you, you should be going to a football game or, or you should be down at the casino or, or recovering from Saturday night in, uh, in a, um, with headaches <laughs> and things. Um, and so if they're persecuted or trouble comes on account of the word, they quickly fade away and their profession of faith is not genuine. Now the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life. Who has worries? If you didn't put your hand up, I'll pray for you later. The lure of wealth. I mean, who? I I don't think we we necessarily think about it all the time. But at some stage, I think everybody's thought, wouldn't it be nice to have more money? 
And then we repent and think, no, no, God provides everything I need. I don't need more money. Don't we? Okay. And the desire for other things. I mean, Apple, I think, are making a, uh, an announcement tomorrow. A new iPhone and a new iPad are coming out. Some, hey? Yeah. The trouble is it's an iPhone 5 SE, which is really odd. Yeah. Yeah, rubbish. I mean, who needs one, right? But the thing is that all of these announcements come out and, and everybody who's technically minded starts to salivate at the idea that there's new technology that's coming out that can do things that their old phone can't do. Who, and I've got, I've got this great phone that does all these wonderful things that I've actually never used it for. But I, I, when a new one comes out, I, I want more features that I'm never going to use because that's, that's just the way we work and we need to learn to stop that. So those things compete with our faith. And if they compete strongly enough, they can actually push that out because the worries of the world crowd in and compress our faith so that it amounts to nothing in the end and vanishes. Faith needs a, a climate and an atmosphere and, and, and a soil that is conducive to it to grow. We want our faith to grow, not to shrink. And so we, we get pre, preoccupied. And Christians are as bad, as bad at this or as good at it, depending on which way you're looking at it, as anybody else in the world. We, we love the things of this world. Now, we're called to use the things of this world. I mean, we use them in church. But we need to be using them for a purpose, not because you know, we've got the best on there. It's not like we're a great church because we have a... Um, can't even read it. I think it's Nepson. Um, but you know, perhaps if we'd be a better church if we had a Panasonic. I mean, let's take up an offering right now so that we can get a better data projector so we can be a better church. Amen. Attendance? No. And we get caught up with the whole idea that somehow our technology is going to make us better Christians and we lose our Christianity and often lose the technology as well. So they choke the word, make it unfruitful. And it's interesting. It actually says here that indicates that people who are concerned so much with that are actually not true believers. Got very quiet in here. Okay, let's move on to the next one. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. So by contrast, others hear the word, they accept it, and produce a crop or bear spiritual fruit. These are genuine disciples. Now this is a, a frightening statement actually, and I'll come to that in a minute. But we get excited when people get saved because initial acceptance of a truth is exciting. But it's actually not the most important factor. Biblical faith is not based on a past emotional decision, but on a growing relationship. Salvation is not an accident insurance policy. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's actually a restored image of God, which allows us to have intimate fellowship with God. It's something which changes in us and allows us to see and interact with God differently than we had before. And who knows that when it comes to people, when we meet people, you know, it, it's great to meet people. How do you do? Good. He's got a nice firm handshake. I like him. He's, a, he's a, sort of the red hair. Good. I might let him marry my daughter. I mean, um, but initially, you thought that was good, but the actual basis of, of a relationship is actually time and perseverance and the fact that it, it's not just a, an initial impressions and sometimes we, we get the idea that we've done something I've introduced my Brendan, myself to Brendan my Brendan 
And I can go off and somebody says, do you know Brendan Skinner? I say, yeah, he's a great friend of mine. Met him once. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? But all too many, all too often we find Christians who say, yep, I got saved. Met Jesus once. I'm going to heaven. You something, well, hang on, no. It's not a question of meeting him once. It's hanging out with him. It's being with him all the time. So... A joyful germination is no substitute for a fruit-bearing relationship. Many a seed starts to grow and then gets wiped out before it ever bears fruit. So who does the sower represent? Well, in this story, it actually represents Jesus. But you notice it represents people who spread the word of God. So it represents me and you. We are the sower. We're not called, notice, to check the soil because he just ploughed over everything. We're called to prepare the soil and plant the seed. And despite our best efforts, not all the seed will bear fruit. But the seed that does will produce a harvest of 30, 60 or 100 fold. You know, back in those days, when they took a harvest from the seed that they were planting, Tenfold was considered really good. And so you sort of think, well, Jesus mentions here for 30, 60, 100 fold. So he's not talking about a normal harvest. He, he's not saying that you, know, you get what you expect. He's saying that when your seed bears fruit, it will actually bear fruit beyond what is considered normal. Even 30 fold is considered three times more than normal. 60 is great, 100 fold. It's like, wow, this is incredible. But who, who bears the fruit? The sower? No, it's the seed. Sometimes I think we take the responsibility of spreading the word and we, we feel that we have to bear all the fruit. Now we're only called to bear the fruit we can bear. We're actually called to plant other seeds which will bear their own fruit. We're not responsible for the fruit that other people bear. And notice that Jesus gave an example of three different amounts because different soils will produce different amounts of fruit, different conditions, different seasons. And so he's not saying it here to actually get us excited about the maths. I don't think the, the fold increase is actually as important as the fact that you have a harvest. We get caught up, and I know that this particular parable has been used as a, as a giving parable. That people have got up and said, look, this is all about giving. If we give and we plant in the good soil, we'll get a return on our giving. Of 30, 60 or 100 fold. But if you plant it in bad soil, we won't. What a load of absolute twaddle. The, the, the great thing, and this isn't an advertisement for bad church. But God sees the heart of the giver and he rewards the heart. You could give it to the dodgiest preacher you've ever seen who leaves the country with your offering and spends it immorally in another country somewhere. Let's take it as far away as possible because we're not immoral here. Um, and, and the offering that you have made is just as blessed as one that you've given to somebody who takes it on a mission trip and saves a village and gives them clean water and, and does great things with it. It's not about the recipient of our giving. It's about the heart with which we give. So we can't, determine, we can't go around saying, well, I want to put my giving into good soil so that I get a great return on, the, on my investment. That's bollocks. It's the heart with which we give that, that God rewards it's not the, the, the end result. We can give to something that turns into a total disaster. Guess what? God says, your heart is pure. Your giving is good. Your reward 
comes from me. So, we're the sower. What does that mean for us? That the frightening thing about this is that it implies very strongly that faithfulness is not about duration. We look at people who have been in church for 20 years and we say they're a faithful person. And they may well be. But Jesus equates faithfulness here to fruitfulness. Which means that faithfulness is not just about hanging around Jesus. It's not just about hanging around church. It's not just hanging around church people. It's not learning the ropes. Learning Christianese. Learning words like quintessential. It's actually about being a fruitful Christian. And the way to do that is to accept the fact that Jesus has planted us here. Actually, that's probably not a good word. Jesus has placed us here to be the sowers of his word. We are the farmer that casts out the seed. It doesn't matter whether it's rocky ground, thorns, footpaths, whatever. We're actually called just to cast out the seed. Those things are hidden from us. We just prepare the ground. And then we cast God's word into that field. We are the sower. Repeat after me. I am the sower. With enthusiasm now, come on. I am the sower. Oh, let's go out and plant something. Ooh, that, you got me excited then. So, but before we close, this is something God, Jesus brought this as a revelation to people. The secret of the kingdom of God is actually knowing that Jesus Christ has come as our Lord and Saviour. To actually be able to sow the word of God, we, we have to know that secret personally. And the great thing is, and, and this is, this is a, a good phrase to use, there are secrets in the kingdom of God that are placed there for us to find. The secrets of the kingdom of God are not hidden so that we can't find them. They're actually just placed out of plain view so that we can find them. And we are encouraged to go looking for them. And the first of those secrets is the fact that to sow the word of God, we've actually got to accept that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. We actually have to have that revelation that he has come as a new teacher with a new teaching and that to follow that teaching, we have to accept that he has come as the Son of God. And you may be sitting here in church having possibly heard this before. You, you may have never heard this before. But you've come to the realisation that it's, it's not just good enough to hear the word. We actually need to experience Jesus Christ. And we do that by actually acknowledging that secret that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is my Lord and Saviour. And that acknowledgement takes the form of a, a short prayer where we say, Okay, Lord, I've got it. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Saviour. That is the secret that I've been missing all of my life. And I want to do that now. And that's all we have to do. That's the first step. That's the ticket part, if you like. That's the ticket to heaven. But that's not salvation. That's just the ticket to begin walking the path. You know, it's your ticket into the, the, the exit, what is it? The transit lounge before you can get on the plane. Ooh, something on catch of the day. <laughs> Sorry, did I just spoil the mood there? <laughs> if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus... You've never bought anything from Catch the Day. I shouldn't go on on that line. 
if you recognize that the secret about the kingdom of God is something you haven't understood and that now you get it, now is an opportunity for you to actually say, okay, now I understand that, I'm going to do something different with my life. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask everybody here just to close their eyes, bow their heads, if you would. And if that's you and you have never actively recognized that secret in God's kingdom and said, look, I want to follow Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And if you've perhaps done it before, but you realize that you're a bit like I was describing with me and Brendan, met him once, but never hung out with him, then it's time for a reintroduction. And so if you've never been introduced or you want to be reintroduced to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, while people have their eyes closed and aren't looking around, if you could pop your hand up so that I could see it, I'd love to pray a prayer with you to introduce you to Jesus. Is there anybody here right now? If if that's you, just pop your hand up so that I can see it and I'll ask you to pop it straight back down again and we can pray a prayer together to invite Jesus into your life. Excellent. Can I get you all to stand, please? I'll assume that we all know Jesus intimately and that it's something in this message has stirred something which is going to change how we, how we see ourselves. How we can actually see ourselves more as God sees us rather than as the world sees us, our relatives, our friends, even ourselves. So I want us to pray. I want you to pray after me. Lord Jesus, I've discovered your secret. You are the Son of God. You are my Lord. You are my Saviour. I rejoice in the relationship I have with you. I proclaim today that it is not passive, but it is an active relationship. That I am a doer of the word, not just a hearer. I thank you that you have put power in my life to fulfill your word, to be a sower. In Jesus' name, amen.